All right, so good evening. It's good to see as people... Pesach was already a very long time ago, but I feel like we're still all kind of gradually coming back, and that's a very nice it's a very nice feeling in its own right. So last week we dealt with Yechezkel, Ezekiel, as the Kohen prophet, which is really an unusual concept, and we spent a lot of time dealing with his unique role as the prophet of the exile exactly during what would have been his, his priestly tenure had he been in Jerusalem. And we spent time talking about how that relegates him to having literally no personality and no name. And part of that story is what we talked about last time, that one of the great revolutions of the book of Yechezkel in general is the idea that God is still with the people even in the exile. That was something that the people really did not think was true. They really thought it was over. And as a result, the idea that, oh, here's a Kohen serving a Kohen-like tenure in Babylonia, getting prophecy, having God appear to him, was a revolution. And we talked about the concept of Mikdash Me'at, the idea of it being a small sanctuary in exile, meaning this isn't the real thing. The real thing is when we return to the land of Israel and have the temple again. But in its absence, it doesn't mean that the God-Israel relationship is dead. And that's something that Yechezkel, Ezekiel, had to really beat the people over the head with. And that was a huge revolution. I mentioned at the very end of last week the dangling tantalizer. Got to have those once in a while. And and, uh, in my opinion, you have to have them more than just once in a while. That there's another piece of why Ezekiel having no personality is so important. And that is because in this book, the personality is that of God. And when God's personality is in the room, nobody else is home. Nobody else is allowed to be home. Nobody else is allowed to have any trace of personality. So Sue, at the very end of last week, said, well, isn't that a heretical concept to talk about God and having emotions and a personality? Such a troublemaker, Sue. And so Sue's question is right. The reason why Sue asked that question is because of Rambam. Rambam trained us all very well, and rightly so. Rambam correctly feared, both in his day and all the time before him and all the time after him, we haven't, he hasn't cured us of our problems, that it's a little too easy to read the Bible on a superficial level, take it all literally, and start to think that this is what the prophets actually think is true of God. Whether it's that God has fingers or hands or nostrils, he gets temperamental or jealous or angry or happy or loving, all these different things. And Rambam said, this is allegory. Don't take this literally, and in fact, you must never take this literally. Not just that it's mistaken, but actually that means that you have the wrong religion. He took this quite seriously. He said, if you have the wrong concept of God, you no longer believe in the God of Israel. And that's what Sue was talking about with regard to heretical. And on the one hand, of course, Rambam is correct. It is a tragic error that continues to this very day. I read scholars all the time who continue to talk about it since they take, they assume that the authors of the Bible meant everything that they said literally on the most shallow, superficial level ever. And therefore they continue to say, oh, this is what ancient Israelites thought about God. Which I find very distressing. Just because, again, we all could read the same words and we all see the same things. The question is what you do with it. So Rambam waged war. And on some level, he actually won this war. As opposed to all the other battles that he fought and lost miserably, poor Rambam. He had a rough, he had a rough time trying to persuade the Jewish public of everything, including rabbis. But he tried. But what's the harm of Rambam? And that's why I don't mind saying that God has a personality and that's why he has such a big one. The harm of Rambam is, guess what, folks? The Bible chose its words very carefully. And it wanted us to feel God's personality. If God wanted to speak in philosophical, abstract terms, God could have done that. And then we'd all be sitting there going, how do we relate to this God? 
When you talk about God being angry or in love or heartbroken, okay, that stuff we can really sink our teeth into. So one rabbi in the 19th century who was particularly disturbed with Rambam's absolutism on this score was Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. And that's in source number one over here. He said, for so long people have philosophized all around these expressions to remove the danger of the slightest thought of any materiality or corporeality of God, that at the end one runs very nearly into the danger of losing all idea of the personality of God. Hirsch says, great, Rambam is right. God doesn't really get jealous the way that we do. He doesn't really love the same way that we do. He doesn't have any body parts at all. I get it, says Rav Hirsch. He doesn't disagree with Rambam. He just says, but, okay, but listen to the words of Tanakh. God obviously wants us to be able to relate to him. And if we spend all day going through Tanakh saying, oh, this isn't literal, this isn't literal, this isn't literal, that's true, but then you miss what it's trying to say. You miss the whole power of the text. So he says that if you over-philosophize, then you end up losing the power of what Tanakh is all about. Had that been the purpose of the Torah, those kinds of expressions could have easily been avoided. God knows how to write it differently if he wanted to. He chose to write it in terms of God being loving and angry and jealous and so on. But this last danger is greater than the first. Such consciousness of the personality of God is of much greater importance than speculating about it. As to whether this or that can be asserted of God. Rafersh rejects the whole philosophical enterprise. He says, we don't learn Tanakh to write a systematic theology. That's not what this is about. That's why you'll never hear me talking about systematic theology at all. right? Because Tanakh is, it doesn't talk about systematic theology. It's a relationship with God. It's all about the relationship. So Rav Hirsch says, if you take away God's personality, there goes the relationship. You might get a great book of philosophy of God 101, but that's not what Tanakh is. If Tanakh wanted to be that, God would have written it that way. So that's what I talk about. So Rav Hirsch is just saying what all commentators post-Rambam understood very well. Rambam is correct in saying, just because it says that God is jealous, you and I should not think, oh, God is in a bad mood again. He's just like us. I was like that just last week. right? Don't relate to God that much. Don't take it too literally. But simultaneously, don't lose the power of what it is saying. The book of Ezekiel is all about that power. The book of Ezekiel, 100% of it, is about God revealing himself more explicitly than anywhere else in Tanakh revealing his emotions more than anywhere else in Tanakh. And again, what that means on a philosophical level, I don't know. But I can tell you it's there. And I can tell you it's there in a very big way. Chapters 8 through 11 have a vision. It's not in the source sheets. I'm just going to give you the outline of what happens over there. There's one great big vision. It's actually kind of cool. Ezekiel starts off in his home in Babylonia. And suddenly this hand grabs him by the hair and yanks him out of the window. And off he goes to the land of Israel. It's this visionary experience. And God is going to give him a visual tour of what's going on in Jerusalem right now. And again, this is shortly before the destruction of the first temple in 586. And he shows him, look at these guys. They're worshiping idols over here, and they're bowing down to the sun over there, and they're turning their backs to the temple and bowing down to the sun, and all one form of idolatry after another. Very, very egregious. God is saying, I can't take this anymore. They're driving me out of my home, he tells Ezekiel. And in chapter 9, God summons these characters who are angels of destruction. And the angels come and they actually throw coals onto Jerusalem and destroy it. Now, this is around the year 591 BCE that this vision is taking place, meaning five or so years before the actual destruction. So Ezekiel is seeing a virtual destruction of Jerusalem, even though at the moment the city is still there and the temple is still standing. But as far as Ezekiel's metaphysical reality, which is where he lives more than he lives in our reality, 
The temple is destroyed right here and now. Once the angels throw coals on Jerusalem and destroy it, it's over. And then comes the grand vision of the chariot in chapter 10, where the chariot is on the go. The celestial chariot comes into play, the angels are bearing God's presence, and the chariot leaves the temple and actually travels off into the distance. And it's off, it's headed to Babylonia. As far as Ezekiel's visionary experience is concerned, this is the moment when the temple was really destroyed in 591. Because after all, if God's presence is leaving it, it doesn't really help that there's still a building there, right? What matters is God's presence. The building is nice, but it's, it's not the point. The point is that this is the God-Israel interaction, and with God moving, moving on the go, it's over. Now, we mentioned at the very end of last week that God ordered Ezekiel when the destruction occurs in chapter 24. He and the people are not allowed to mourn which is as inhuman as it goes. We talked about the link between that and Aaron not being allowed to mourn when his sons, Nadav and Abihu, were destroyed, when they were killed, for the same reason. You're a Kohen, you have no personality, and you're in service. Kohen in service has no personality, and is essentially inhuman. So you're not allowed to mourn the greatest catastrophe of the whole biblical period. The one who does mourn is God. If you look at source number two, you already have it at the very beginning of our book. Back in chapter 2, it says, As I looked, this is Ezekiel talking, There was a hand stretched out to me, holding a written scroll. He unrolled it before me, and it was inscribed on both the front and the back. On it were written lamentations, dirges, and woes. We talked about how Jeremiah, the most human of the prophets, when he sees the temple in Jerusalem go up in smoke, he cries, he's in mourning, and traditionally he writes the book of lamentations. In our book, God writes the book of lamentations. Ezekiel's not allowed to mourn. He can't write anything. Right? The people are not allowed to cry in Babylonia. They're not allowed to have any emotions because God isn't, God, God's emotions are here. God is writing that book of lamentations. God is miserable. God is being banished from the temple. And in fact, here's the God-Israel relationship on this one. From an Israel point of view, what happens when the temple is destroyed? What does that mean for us? For writing from our perspective, what just happened when the temple was destroyed? Can't bring sacrifices. Big blow there, yeah. Hmm? Defeat, good. I mean, terrible, but, but correct. Right? What does it mean when the temple is destroyed? It's a, this is a great big deal. It includes defeat, includes lack of sacrificial order. Okay. The Kohanim lose their job or their function, yeah. The heart of Israel is... is there's a, yeah, there's a stab wound in the heart of Israel. What else? Hester Panim, God's hiding his presence. What else? Yeah, God is homeless. But that's the God side of the equation, right? You're, you're speaking, Ezekiel th- thinks like you think, right? The way that we think about it is, look at this. Jerusalem fell. Jerusalem is our capital. It's the capital of Israel, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. That's what fell. Our Jews are going into exile. It's a national catastrophe of the first order. We've lost our central house of worship. Our religious order is shattered. We can't bring sacrifices. The Kohanim are done. Everything is wrong. We're going into exile. From a divine point of view, what happens is God is homeless. That's what the book of Ezekiel is about. The Israel part of it is marginal because it's all focused on God's side of the equation. God is homeless. God has been banished from his sanctuary. God is getting on his chariot and traveling into Babylonia. This is overwhelming. God is writing a book of lamentations because God is sad. And there's no room for any human sadness in a book that has God's sadness. 
Now, even though Rambam said what he said to downplay our literal taking it, the Midrash picks up the colorfulness of this situation. If you look at source number three, Rav Acha said, the Shekhinah may be likened to a king who left his palace in anger. After going out, he came back and embraced and kissed the walls of the palace and its pillars, weeping and exclaiming, Oh, the peace of my palace! Oh, the peace of my royal residence! Oh, the peace of my beloved house! Oh, peace! From now onward, let there be peace. The king of kings is crying in this book. Right, again, this is the, the language of the Midrash picks up on what's going on in the text. Again, don't take it all too literally, going back to Sue's point. She's absolutely right. But the Midrash feels the pain of the book. That God himself, as he's being driven out of his home, is crying as he leaves and goes off into exile. And then the most poignant way of saying it, Rav Acha comes back with another line in source number four. There's a verse in the book of Jeremiah, right after the temple is destroyed, where it says, being bound in chains. On its literal level, the people bound in chains are Jeremiah and the Jews. These are the people who are bound in chains. They're the captives after the fall of Jerusalem. Rav Acha said, if it is possible to say so, both he and Jeremiah were bound in chains. When it says he was bound in chains, so that opens up an ambiguity. We all know that he means Jeremiah, because just look at the context, that's what it means. Rav Acha said, yeah, 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 but it's a pronoun. Pronouns have that ambiguity that you can play around with when you're in the Midrash. He was bound in chains means that God was bound in chains. Or, as a parallel, it is written, I was among the captives. The very first verse of our book. When it says, I was among the captives, who is the I? Well, on the plain level, who is it? Ezekiel. Yeah, so he's talking He's talking in the first person. Rav Acha said, this book is about God saying, I'm in exile. That's not the shot of the verse. The verse is Ezekiel's talking. We all, we all know that. But Rav Acha says, but the book is about God saying, I'm in exile. I'm the one who's tied up in chains. That's really what this book is about. And again, you, nobody could say it better than the world, words of the Midrash, picking up exactly on the tone of the text. Meanwhile, in the book of Ezekiel, what's the tone of the destruction? These are the coldest words in the whole Bible coming up in source number five. In the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth day of the tenth month, a fugitive came to me from Jerusalem and reported, the city has fallen. Meaning this is when word came to the Babylonian community. The temple is destroyed, Jerusalem has been sacked, right? This is the biggest heartbreakingest news you could think of. So the news comes to Babylonia. Somebody escaped the battlefront and finally informs the Babylonian Jewish community of what has taken place. Now the hand of the Lord had come upon me the evening before the fugitive arrived and opened my mouth before he came to me in the morning. Thus my mouth was opened and I was no longer speechless. So what's the reaction to the worst news ever? Nothing. He's not mourning. He's not allowed to mourn. It's incredible, right? I mean, this is big news. I'm expecting everybody to tear those garments, sackcloth, ashes on the head, the whole biblical rites of mourning. That's what you do here. I'm miserable reading these verses, right? I'm sure you are too. Jerusalem has fallen. The city has fallen. In Hebrew, it's just two words. Hukatahair. And instead of this eruption of emotion that you're, we're all expecting here, not in this book, sorry. Go to the book of Jeremiah. Go to the book of Lamentations. You need the human-oriented books to hear human misery. This book is all about divine misery. So that's point number one, You know, which ties back to what we dealt with last week. The notion that our book, because Ezekiel is a prophet-priest, 
on the one hand, that gives him a priestly role in the exile, namely his prophetic tenure is his priestly tenure. That's what we talked about last time. But we also see that his personality shuts down, enabling God's personality to take over. There's no room for Ezekiel's personality in this book. Because as soon as he's there, okay, then he becomes the personality. Like in Jeremiah, he's quite a personality, as we've discussed. Not in our book. Our book is all about God's personality. Once you understand that this book is the autobiography of God in our Bible, and that this is God's emotional record during the worst, bleakest period in the whole biblical period, now you can start to understand the whole rest of the book. It really opens everything up. The first thing that it opens up is, what is redemption? When we think of the messianic redemption, what is it, what is, what's involved with that? We've already dealt with several messianic visions between Isaiah and Jeremiah. What do you get when Mashiach comes? You get peace, good. Correct, the reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty. Okay, good. Resurrection. Resurrection, good. Kibbutz Kaliyot, the ingathering of all the exiles, good. Really big, wonderful things, right? Now, in the book of Ezekiel, that stuff happens, but boy, does it happen from a reverse angle. Because remember, what you're talking about, all our normal messianic expectations all have the same common denominator. This is the human side of what the messianic redemption is going to be. Right? It will be good for the Jews. It will be good for the world. It's a humanity-driven thing. When you get the ideal society, you will have peace for the Jews, peace for the world. The Vedic dynasty, everybody will be stable again. Harmony. We're always dealing with the human side of the equation. That's what all of the other messianic visions are about. Well, in our book, what does Mashiach need to do? The answer is, God needs to come back home. Right? It's not about the Jews being in exile. We're marginal to this book. It's about God is in exile. God is homeless and God is in exile. So the only way you're going to get a redemption around here is if you rebuild God's home and God comes back. So what's Israel's role in that? That's the, that's the question of our book. What is, what's the role of the Jewish people in this God redemption, you know, when you're dealing with the divine side of the equation, where God is homeless, God has been exiled, God is banished, and now God very painfully longs to return. So what is the role of Israel in all of this? Oh, so first of all, we have a job. we got to get back home and build the temple so God has a home again. Excellent. Good. What else? Hmm? We have to earn it. Okay, very good. The Jews need to... The reason why God is exiled is not because the Babylonians shoot him away, it's because the Jews shoot him away. So... Right? B'nai Israel, through their terrible, egregious sins, particularly in the precincts of the temple, drove God's presence away. They defiled the temple, and God can't be in a place of Tumah, or at least not for too long, yeah? So, that means God is suffering for us, therefore he's homeless because of us? He's homeless because we drove him out, right? He's not suffering on our behalf. We're the bad guys in the story. Yet he's the one homeless. Right? He's suffering suffering on account of us, correct. That that is correct. It's totally Israel's fault in this book, as in other books, but here it's most explicit. Here we're dealing with, since the the logic is like this, God represents Kedusha, the supreme holiness. Holiness and Tumah cannot coexist. The whole Torah system is based on that. So the way you normally cure it is repentance, Yom Kippur, various things happen that since people sin, that, okay, but we can erase that sin so God can stick around. 
But in this case, the sin output was so immense and nobody was doing anything to reverse it, so Kedushah was banished. So correct, it is the people of Israel's fault in our book that God is homeless and that the temple was destroyed. Okay. So, but sorry, Miriam. Um, I'm troubled by the fact that I feel like I paid you off so you could ask that question to help me get into the next stage of the thing. I don't think that I did, but but thank you. Yeah, we're getting there. You're exactly setting up the next wave of where this is going. First, I have to get back to something that Evelyn said. <coughs> Evelyn is right. There's a huge debate, by the way, in the Talmud, which is one of these great circular debates that can never be resolved because it can never be resolved. If you just read it, you see why, and I'll explain why. The Talmud debates whether or not the Jews need to earn the Messianic redemption or not. Some passages, it is very clear. If we repent, that's when God comes back. Others, it seems like it's unconditional. It sounds like at some point, God will redeem us whether we're good or not. And then what they do is, this is when you know you're going to run in circles forever, they hurl different verses at each other. Meaning, some biblical verses suggest we need to repent first, that we have to earn and merit the redemption. And other verses suggest, no, God is going to do it anyway, even if we're bad. And since they're not addressing the same verses, that you're running in a circle. It's very clear that different prophetic passages have different slants on what to do with it. Well, I'll tell you, the book of Ezekiel is part of the part two. God can't wait for the people of Israel to repent in the book of Ezekiel. It's not up to us. In fact, nothing is up to us. And the way that God and Ezekiel portrayed the people of Israel from their inception as a nation until today, meaning not this today, but Ezekiel's today is, we have been 100% bad 100% of the time. It is the bleakest possible portrayal of the people of Israel. In order to achieve this, he has to simply not mention, for example, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They're not part of the script. Start with them in Egypt. Don't mention Moshe at all. Keep, keep the good guys out of the equation. Keep all the good periods out of the equation. And focus on how we've always been rotten to the core. And he has a purpose for this, besides being painfully negative, trying to explain why the people of Israel deserve the destruction. But he's doing more than that, and that's what we're going to drive at in the next phase. But that sets up, let's, let's flash back to the book of Jeremiah for just a moment, where it's a slightly nicer picture of the whole thing. You may recall the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. Jeremiah begins and says, God remembers the honeymoon. Oh, those were the days. Everything was so nice, and you trusted me, and you came into the desert. You were so holy then, and then you went ahead and blew it. And then tirade after tirade for quite some time. But the logic is, we have a pristine relationship at its heart, and we can restore it with repentance. In other words, it's human-driven. Redemption can happen, and we can avoid disaster if we just merit better situations. As long as we sin, nothing's going to change. But we could do better. That's what Evelyn was saying. Right? That's Jeremiah's book. And the imagery that he uses, it's fantastic, is heart circumcision. The idea is that the heart, our heart is, is good. It's healthy in there. But God assesses that there are layers of spiritual bad cholesterol that have, that have accreted as a result of layer of layer after, of sin. 
But if we just get some good surgery over there and get rid of that cholesterol, the bad kind, then we're back to the original good heart. Everything will be back as good as new. That's Jeremiah's vision of history. It started good, then we really blew it. But God longs for the good old days, and we can get there with repentance. That's Jeremiah's picture. Ezekiel's picture is we've never been good. We've been rotten since Egypt. We were worshiping idols in Egypt. Now, by the way, we might have been worshiping idols in Egypt, but there's no trace of that in the Torah. You have to wait for the book of Ezekiel and a couple of allusions in earlier books. But the Shemot narrative, I have no idea how religious or not the people of Israel were. It's simply not relevant to what the Torah is trying to teach. Well, for Ezekiel, it makes a big difference. He really cares about this issue. And he says they were horrible, and all of them were horrible, and always horrible, and we're going to get to chapter 20, which drives some of that home. But given that we were always rotten, that means that there's no good heart underneath. Right? There's nothing to long for. You're not longing for the good old days. There were no good old days, according to Ezekiel. So what do we need? And the answer, of course, is, long before 1968, we need a heart transplant. <laughs> So here we have the first time that I'm aware of anybody talking about a heart transplant, and, and he's talking about it again in ballpark 591 BCE. If you look at source number six, yet say, Thus said the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. He's saying, After the destruction, you will eventually return to your land. And they shall return there and do away with its detestable things and all its abominations. So first of all, notice the order. God will bring us back first and then we will repent. It's not the Jeremiah vision. It's not the Isaiah vision. The human side of it is we need to repent and earn the redemption. Here, God is going to bring us back and then we will repent. That's the... Is The point is that God isn't waiting for the people of Israel to do repent. To repent, it's not a it's not a location issue. The issue is, and we'll talk about it when we get to chapter twenty, which is the following source. God desperately—it's it's a crazy way to say it, but I'm going to say it because that's how God portrays it. God desperately needs us, whether He likes it or not. Now I can't imagine my God needing anything. Right? God doesn't have needs. God is God. Not in our book. In our book, God desperately needs Israel and is stuck with us. And that's why he can't destroy us. It's an amazing way of thinking about the people of Israel. God can't destroy us because he needs us too much. It will harm God if he gets rid of the people of Israel. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so over here, the point is that redemption precedes repentance because it's not contingent on that. right? From, from Ezekiel's point of view, God needs us, and that's why we're getting redeemed. He's doing it for God's sake. He's not doing it for our sake. He's not doing it for a patriarchal covenant. He's not doing it because we deserve it. God needs us back. And once we're back, then we'll realize we were doing the wrong thing. And then, verse 19, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh, that they may follow my laws faithfully my laws and faithfully observe my rules. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Heart transplant. You need to talk about heart transplant because there was no good old days according to Ezekiel. Our heart is dead. It's stone. There's nothing good under there. There's no flesh in there. The only way the people of Israel will ever get back on track is if God forcibly redeems us. Then we repent. And then he gives us a heart transplant and now finally we can do what we should have been doing for thousands of years. That's Ezekiel's bleak picture of the redemption, but it's coming from a purely God-centered point of view. Because God is the one who needs us. He needs us back, even if we don't deserve it. 
And that brings us to what Miriam was talking about in chapter 20 over here. Some of us have read this as a Haftarah fairly recently, within the last couple of weeks. Ezekiel chapter 20 is one of three great historical surveys in the book of Ezekiel. And his surveys are are really something else. They're so depressing, among other things. They all have the same common denominator, which is we've never been good. He leaves the patriarchs and matriarchs out of the story. He always picks up the history from Egypt. And the point is that God needs us. And when you read this, you're, you're, again, remember, at some point in time, you have to realize this is a prophecy of condemnation, to be sure, but there's even a prophecy of redemption in here, and you almost can't believe it. So here we go, source number seven. Say to them, by the way, let me just give you the background of this chapter. This chapter is the elders of the Babylonian Jewish community came to Ezekiel's house to hear God's word. Now, That sounds good, and it sounds sincere, and it sounds lovely, but when you hear God's tirade, you realize that's not what's going on. What's going on, you only find out in verse 32 of this chapter, which we'll get, which we'll see inside. They were actually coming to Ezekiel having decided, we're going to assimilate and become Babylonians, because the God-Israel relationship is over. That's what they want to do. Well, God is not about to let that happen. God is not going to let them assimilate, because he needs us. But that's actually what they were thinking, and that becomes explicit later on in this chapter. They realized, well, we're exiled, the temple's going to be destroyed, that's it, we're done. The God-Israel relationship is severed. So that's what they want to know. So God unleashes a a torrent of condemnation over here. Source 7. Say to them, Thus said the Lord God, On the day that I chose Israel, I gave my oath to the stock of the house of Jacob. When I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I gave my oath to them. And I said, I am the Lord, I the Lord am your God, da, da, da. I told them to do certain things, including don't worship other deities. But they defied me and refused to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things they were drawn to, nor did they give up the fetishes of Egypt. So in other words, they were worshiping idols while in Egypt, and even though I told them to stop it, they didn't. Then I resolved to pour out my fury upon them, to vent all my anger upon them there in the land of Egypt. Do you know any of this from the Torah? There's not even a hint of this. None. The whole point is, whoa, Ezekiel is unleashing this, not just a severe condemnation of the people of Israel, but he's not even selecting something that we're familiar with. Again, I don't know what the spiritual state of the people of Israel was during the Egypt experience, because the Torah spends zero time on that. But I didn't have any idea that they were worshipping idols and God was this close to destroying them. You should be aware of the Midrashim that you may have learned when you were in third grade about how during the plague of darkness, a hefty percentage of Israelites were killed off comes from this passage. That's, this, is, this, this passage in Ezekiel, is, that's the origin of all of those Midrashim. The idea is that some Israelites evidently had sunken into the mire of Egyptian paganism and God finished them off right there. He actually did have them killed off. But these Midrashim emanate from this very chapter here. But again, there's nothing in the Torah that remotely suggests either that the Israelites were worshipping idols or that any of them were killed during the plague of darkness or any other time. But here it sounds like God is going to destroy all of the people of Israel. But God realizes he can't do that. Verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name that it might not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they were. For it was before their eyes that I had made myself known to to Israel to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's like, I can't destroy Israel because I need them. They're the witnesses to God's miracles. So if I kill them all, there goes that, and now I have nothing, and people will remain pagan, and I'll never be able to get back on track. God needs us. 
So he couldn't destroy us. Amazing. So that's why there was the exodus from Egypt. How about that? Talk about revisiting your Pesach Seder. There's a whole, I mean, this is, this, this has nothing to do with what we talk about because it has nothing to do with what the Torah talks about. Right? But this is a truly negative slant. And he goes on for a while. Goes on now in the desert. Once again, they were that bad and God was this close to destroying them. But then, for his name's sake, he didn't. So he instead decreed 40 years of wandering. And then the second generation also. And so it was all through the generations. God kept wanting to destroy the always rotten people of Israel. But he didn't. And then finally we get to the now of this tirade in verse 30. Now say to the house of Israel. You don't have to turn anything. It's just a dot, dot, dotted out a lot. Now say to the house of Israel. Thus said the Lord God. If you defile yourselves as your fathers did and go astray after their detestable things... Well, then bad things will happen, right? And what you have in mind, you elders of Babylonia, shall never come to pass. When you say, we will be like the nations, like the families of the lands, worshiping wood and stone. Finally, we hear what the elders of Babylonia were thinking. They wanted to assimilate, and that's why they came to Ezekiel, kind of to get his blessings. So he's like, you think you're getting my blessings? I don't think so. Watch this. Boom. Tirade. And the tirade is, we've always been rotten. There's no salvation. God was this close to destroying us throughout our history, but couldn't because he needed us. And if you want to continue on that path, let me tell you something. God won't let you assimilate because he needs you. But what will happen instead? Verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, I will reign over you with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with overflowing fury. You know, what does it sound like? Yeah, it does sound like Pesach. Okay, now watch this really neat move that Ezekiel is doing over here. Abarbanel asks, you know, he's the, besides being a brilliant biblical commentator, he was also a brilliant politician, right? So he was very bothered by a very basic question, which is, Ezekiel never prophesied the downfall of the Babylonians. He prophesied the downfall of a lot of different nations. Chapters 25 through 32 are dedicated to that. Little nations and big ones that he focuses on are Tyre and Egypt, spends a lot of time on them. But he never comes around and says, oh, and by the way, the biggest and baddest of them all, namely our captors and destroyers, those Babylonians, they are going down. Jeremiah says that they're going to go down. That's the climax in the book of Jeremiah. You talk about these banjo little nations that are going to fall to the Babylonians. And then there are two big, bad chapters about how the Babylonians will then really meet their end. Okay, that makes sense, right? Book of Isaiah. The Assyrians will destroy all of these different banjo nations, and then those Assyrians are going to get smitten down by God. Okay, save the biggest and the baddest for last. Ezekiel never gets around to that biggest and baddest. He never says the Babylonians are going down. Why not? And they are going down. We know that from the book of Jeremiah. It's not that he didn't predict it because it wasn't going to happen. How come he didn't get a prophecy, or how come he doesn't prophesy the downfall of the Babylonians? So what does Abarbanel say, even if he didn't look? Why wouldn't he prophesy the downfall of the Babylonians? That's exactly what Abarbanel says. He can't predict the downfall of the Babylonians because he lives there. And if he would predict the downfall of the Babylonians, and this is disseminated, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is not famed for his great sense of humor about stuff like this. That would be the end of Ezekiel, and possibly it might harm other Jews as well. So God had mercy on Ezekiel by simply never giving him such a prophecy. Because if you give him the prophecy, he's got to tell it. So he just, I'll spare you, Ezekiel. I'll talk about all these other banjo nations that will fall to the Babylonians, but I'm not going to make you prophesy the downfall of Babylonia, because that would be bad. A very fine political answer. 
And it's probably part of the truth. But I'll give you a better answer anyway, which I think is closer to the heart of this book, no puns intended ever, including now. There's a model which all prophets use. Every messianic prophecy has something to do with the exodus from Egypt. Classic one being the celebrated prophecies that we did in the book of Isaiah, where the idea is that seas are going to split, the evil nation is going to get crushed. This time it was the Assyrians in the book of Isaiah. God is going to split the seas, return the exiles, everybody's going to come back home and sing a song. That's a classic model of what you do when you're a prophet and you're predicting the messianic era. You use the exodus as a paradigm, as a model, and you simply plug in the current players. So in this case, the evil paro is the Assyrians. The people of Israel are the people of Israel. God will smite the new paro, redeem the people of Israel, split seas, they'll sing, go back home, go to the promised land. Bingo. Excellent example. I like textbook examples. They come in so handy. Who is the paro in the book of Ezekiel? Who should it be? It should be the Babylonians. And we should have this model of, okay, new paro equals Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. We're still the people of Israel. God will smite Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, redeem the people of Israel, split some seas, they'll come back home, sing some songs. I'm waiting for all of that to happen too. But Ezekiel doesn't do that. And it's not just because, oh, it would not be prudent to predict the downfall of the Babylonians. He is doing this because we are paro. We have the hardened heart. We have the heart of stone. God is redeeming Israel from herself. That's what this prophecy is about. It's not to protect his skin that he's not talking about the Babylonians. It's because Babylonia is not the Pharaoh in his model. His model is, we're causing our own problems. The Babylonians are not the problem. We're the problem. We have the hardened heart. We need to actually be plagued and redeemed from ourselves. Which is crazy, right? I mean, that's why you're reading this stuff where God is going to redeem us with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. It sounds like what God did to Pharaoh, because he's using those words. But we're the Pharaoh. We're also the people of Israel, paradoxically. We're both. He's still redeeming us, but he's redeeming us from us. Okay. So once you get that, then you realize... That's why this prophecy of redemption is crazy, because it sounds violent. It doesn't sound, oh yeah, great, kibbutz galiyod, and you know, return to the exiles, and messianic king, and all that good stuff that we all pray for. It sounds awful. I wouldn't want to be in this. Right? This redemption is violent, and it's violent against the people of Israel, because they're the ones who are getting smitten down by God so that they could be redeemed. Okay, so here we go again. Verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, I will reign over you with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with overflowing fury. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm and overflowing fury, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. You still have Exodus from Pharaoh, still going to the wilderness, right? And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, but then I'll clobber you. So instead of the people of Israel getting manna from heaven and occasional quail and miraculous wells and all that good stuff, and we grumble anyway, but, but at least God was doing his side of the bargain. Here God is going to take us to the desert, and instead of giving us the Torah or something really nice like that, he's going to clobber us in the wilderness. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. Then 
When I have brought you to the land of Israel, to the country that I swore to give to your fathers, you shall know that I am the Lord. Once again, the repentance comes after. There you will recall your ways and all the acts by which you defiled yourselves. You will loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. Then, house of Israel, you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not in accordance with your evil ways and corrupt acts, declares the Lord God. As far as Ezekiel is concerned, redemption is happening not because we deserve it. It's doing. God redeems the people of Israel because he has to. He has to avoid the desecration of God's name. If there's no Israel, God's name is permanently desecrated. If, God, if Israel is here, God's name can be protected, and one day we'll finally get it right. Yeah, Megan? Wasn't that what God, like Abraham, or Abraham said? Or, or, uh, yeah. Like, 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 many, many prophets, Moshe more specifically. Yeah. Moses is the classic of that particular model, and later prophets all follow suit. You're right. But usually... When prophets are doing this sort of thing, they're doing it in Israel's defense. Whether against God's wrath or against some other nation. Here, God is smiting Israel for his name's sake. And he's redeeming Israel for God's name's sake. It's all about God. So God needs us, which is why he's redeeming us instead of just letting us assimilate. And we have to pay the price because we're not getting it right. So God is saying, eventually, once you're redeemed, then you will get it right. Is that right? Yeah, no, God stuck with us. It's, a, it's an eternal relationship. I mean, look, obviously this is only one aspect of a much broader picture, which do have some, thank God the picture has some better parts, which you'll only hear about in the second half of the book of Ezekiel and in other biblical books. The first half of the book of Ezekiel is the most negative 24 chapters you will ever find in one block. Right? So is it going to contradict the, the point that we've never been good? He's not going to focus, he's not going to change his song. But if you go elsewhere, such as the Torah or other prophetic books, there's definitely a sense that there were some good periods in our history. Ezekiel is not interested in those periods because his message is, heart of stone, we've always been rotten, we're the Pharaoh. But God can't get rid of us because he needs us. So you're right. Again, don't make this into a doctrinal theology, just like you shouldn't take any prophecy in an isolation. This is a piece of a much bigger puzzle. But the rhetoric behind it is besides being overwhelming, drives home the point that the people of Israel should understand. Boy, do they deserve this destruction, but simultaneously, boy, must they realize that the God-Israel relationship is eternal. We've been sinful before, we've suffered before. That's what, that's what he's really doing, right? We've never deserved to be saved, ever, but you know what? God always redeemed us because he needs us, so too he will redeem us now in Babylonia. So there's a very big positive side to this unbelievably negative message. That's why he's saying it this way, yes, Sam? Okay. Okay, one other big revolution in this book for tonight. There's so many revolutions. As I mentioned last week at the beginning, most of the book of Ezekiel, frankly, I find really easy. It's consistent, it's clear. There are the parts that you don't understand at all, and so you just skip those. But other than that, it's really very clear. What makes it complicated is when you hold it up to the other biblical books. In other words, Zohar's question is a grand example of that, right? Wait a minute, what about all the good stuff? (laughs) <laughs> right, so you have to understand Ezekiel on his own terms and understand why he's doing what he's doing. And once you get that, then you realize, okay, he has a very specific message, which is extreme, to put it mildly, at a very extreme time. Right. So here's another example of that. Ezekiel goes long and detailed and incredibly redundantly. The biggest, the biggest and banner example of this is all of chapter 18, or at least the majority of the first half of the chapter is this. Where people were, there were proverb makers. Look at source number eight over here. 
The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by quoting this proverb upon the soil of Israel? Parents eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are blunted. You know that in the good old days there were people just like now. On the, you know, had subways been invented, that's where they all would have been. Right? But instead they're on the street corners and in the marketplaces just saying whatever they say. Right? And nowadays it's the subways, the same thing. Besides prophets, you had proverb makers. And the proverb makers over in Israel were just going around saying, you know, our ancestors ate the grapes, but we have the cavities. And what they're really saying is, we're suffering, but it was our ancestors' sins. That's not fair. If they ate the grapes, they should get the cavities and give us a break. Right? That's, that, that's what the proverb makers in Israel, he's quoting them from, from Israel, saying, His parents eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are blunted. Meaning they're saying, hey, we're suffering for our ancestors' sins. So God responds, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no longer be current among you in Israel. Consider, all lives are mine. The life life of the parent and life of the child are both mine. The person who sins, only he shall die. In other words, what God does is, he says this proverb is wrong. God never punishes or rewards intergenerationally. In fact, the whole rest of the chapter just goes along about this. If there was a righteous parent and the kid was bad, well, there's no merit for the kid. The kid's going to get smitten. And if the parent was bad and the kid's righteous, great. And God loves the righteous kid. There's no intergenerational reward or punishment. Not only that, but if you were righteous all along and then you become bad, then God is going to get you because now you're bad. And if you were bad all along and now you're righteous, now God loves you because you're a Baal You've repented. In other words, God judges you for what you have done lately. No collective picture of you, and certainly no corporate reward or punishment. (laughs) Ezekiel could not be less ambiguous. And he goes on and on and on and on, making the point that it's all up to what we do today. There are no clouds or benefits from the past. Can I contradict something that Torah says? Of course you're right. See, so Ezekiel is saying something, but... That, you're, uh, Norman, you're hitting all the right questions here. Good. Of course, that's the problem. In other words, what he says is as clear as clear can be. There's no other way to read it. He drives the point home over and over and over and over again. So just in case you thought it was a little ambiguous, forget it. He shuts that one down. And he says this in multiple chapters in the book. It just keeps on coming up. And when you read it in a vacuum, it's just like, okay, I guess God doesn't reward or punish intergenerationally, ever. But we all know, wait a minute, it's in the Ten Commandments that he does. Right? What Norman is saying is correct. In the Torah, plenty of times, including right over here in source number nine. You shall not bow down to them, referring to idols, of course, or serve them. For I, the Lord God, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well... Sounds like there is intergenerational reward and punishment, folks. And here's God himself saying it in none other place than the Ten Commandments. And it shows up in bunches of other places in the Torah. It shows up in narratives. You have, like, the Korach Rebellion, right? So you have Korach and Datanavi Ram are the ringleaders. There's some other people involved. But the punishment involves the death of their family members, too. Not just the rebels. Same thing with a man named Achan in the book of Joshua. Achan plunders from the city of Jericho... He and his family, everybody's executed. It's very clear that God punishes intergenerationally. God won't let human courts do that, meaning in a regular Beit situation or Sanhedrin, human courts are not allowed to punish intergenerationally. If a parent sins, worship idols, you don't execute the children. 
right, or the other way around. There's no intergenerational punishment in courts, but God does. That's exactly what Norman is saying. Ezekiel says, quoting God, no less, that God never rewards or punishes intergenerationally. It's a bummer for those of us who say the Amidah, right? Zocher chaseavot. We love intergenerational merit, and we say it a minimum of three times a day, right? We certainly believe in intergenerational merit. Ezekiel says there's no such thing. So Ezekiel is the one who has the question against him, because the rule is if the Torah says something and somebody else, nobody else is allowed to say something different, but Ezekiel's quoting God. He's a prophet. It sounds like a contradiction. So our commentators scramble like crazy. This is a function you were to give like big time long and just go through all of the evidence. Here's three tracks of how it's dealt with. Okay, track number one, it's not in the source sheet, and it's going to summarize the two-hour long shiur. Track one is to reconcile the two passages. God punishes the generations of the sinner when the later generations also are sinful. Whereas Ezekiel is saying, well, if the later generations are righteous, then God does not. So they're consistent. Right? That is the dominant position taken by several Talmudic passages and a whole long line of the best commentators you could ever think of. You know, Rashi, Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, Radak, Ramban, you name them, they're on the list. That's the dominant view, trying to reconcile the two by saying that God will only punish later generations for their sins if those later generations also are sinful. But if they're righteous, then that's what Ezekiel is talking about. Then God, of course, will not harm them at all. Now, that's the dominant view. It's certainly a more comfortable position. The downside is it seems to fly in the face of tons of evidence, including the deaths of the families of Zatan, Aviram, Korach, Achan, and others. It seems very clear that God punishes little children for the sins of their ancestors, and it's not the kid's fault at all. Right? So that team of commentators has a lot of explaining to do. There's a second view, which you almost can't believe is on the books, but here it is. It's what Norman said can't be. Well, look at source number 11. Said Rabbi Yosef ben Chanina, Our master Moses pronounced four adverse sentences on Israel, but four prophets came and revoked them. Moses had said, The Lord is visiting the iniquities, uh, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ezekiel came and declared, The soul that sins, it shall die. Yep, sorry, he just changed theology. There you go. The end. That was easy. Now, the good news for this interpretation is it matches all the evidence really well. Because everything before the book of Ezekiel, it's very clear that there's intergenerational reward and punishment. And now Ezekiel is saying there's no such thing. The bad news is, what is he talking about? You can't do that. Right? Exactly what Norman said, right? Prophets don't just negate Torah theology. So within the negating Torah theology post, there's a more rationalistic and a more mystical point of view. The rationalistic view is espoused by Rabbi Eliezer of Belgian Sea. I mentioned him last week from 12th century northern France. He says, until now I have been patient on behalf of my name and the city I have chosen, but from now on I will not be patient. Rather, you are like individuals. Ezekiel is writing in a different age. Ezekiel is writing to Jews living in exile. The Torah and all of the earlier biblical books are writing to the corporate Jewish people living in the land of Israel as one unified nation. When we're all living together in Israel, God treats us as a collective. But now that we're in exile, we're scattered, God is now judging us as individuals. We don't have that corporate status anymore. So that's what Rabbi Eliezer of Belgian Sea explains. It's not a contradiction between Ezekiel and the Torah. It's that Ezekiel is describing a totally different reality. The reality is we're not one people living in one land as a unified corporate whole anymore. Right, Rav Cook, taking the more mystical approach in Source 13, says, no, Ezekiel really changed the theology. 
When the nation declined, Ezekiel saw that spiritual separateness was good for her, so that the past sins would not factor into their judgment. Ezekiel thought that it would be bad if we continued to have corporate punishment. This is what the situation required. When a righteous person decrees a decree, heaven upholds it, and a new path is paved to judge each individual separately. Ezekiel, on his own, looked around and said, Great, we're in exile. Temple is getting destroyed. And we have hundreds of years of sins sitting on our shoulders. If you tell the people to repent, they'll say, why bother? We have hundreds of years of sin sitting on our shoulders. Ezekiel's like, how am I going to fix this? I know. I'll change the rule and God will have to listen to me. God, from now on, please just judge us as individuals. And God said, okay. That's the mystical way of thinking about this, that a tzaddik, right? Here you have a prophet, this tzaddik theology. That a tzaddik can actually pull strings up on high. So Rav Kook is speaking as a great mystic, and so that's how he, that's how he frames the whole thing. So we have two tracks of, that we've seen. One is to somehow try to reconcile Ezekiel to everything else. That is very hard to do. The second one is to say that theology actually changed, which matches all the evidence really well, but that's also, honestly, very hard to say. And then there's a third approach, which I think is the best approach. That's a more recent approach that 20th century scholars and commentators understand better. And that's what we've said at the very beginning of, of today's or in a totally different way. Never, ever read the prophetic canon as a systematic theology. It's a horrible mistake. It was not written as that. It was not written to be some kind of philosophical treatise on the nature of God. That's not what these books are. These are books, prophecy is something that was given to a real prophet at a real time talking to real people. And once you get that, you realize what's going on. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are at a crossroads in Jewish history, and they both very well know that. Jeremiah, by the way, if you go back to source 10, remember, a contemporary of Ezekiel said, In those days they shall no longer say, Parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are blunted. But everyone shall die for his own sins. Whosoever eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be blunted. It's quoting the same proverb makers that Ezekiel quotes, but he's saying, in the future it won't be valid. Whereas Ezekiel is saying it's wrong now. Even though they're living at the same time. What's going on? Jeremiah's whole theology, living in the land of Israel, is he has to justify the destruction of the temple. And the people are saying, Jeremiah, look, we don't claim to be righteous. But we're not the worst people who ever lived. How about the generation of Menashe, three, four generations ago? They were really bad. That king was horrible. The people were the worst. How come they didn't get the worst punishment? Jeremiah's whole theology revolves around, well, this is what God always does. There's intergenerational punishment. It's in the Ten Commandments. The book of Jeremiah is rigged on this point. The whole book of Kings, traditionally written by Jeremiah, is hinged on that point. God punishes intergenerationally. So you're right. You don't need to be the worst generation to get the worst punishment. That's Jeremiah's point. So you're complaining that you got cavities from your ancestors? You're right. You did get cavities from your ancestors, and this is what God does. God gives cavities to children when the ancestors are eating too many grapes and not brushing their teeth properly. That's what God does. That's Jeremiah's message, and he's doing it to justify the destruction. Ezekiel, over on the Babylonian side, for him, the destruction's a done deal. He's got to build a future. And he realizes, how are you going to build a future if we're sitting with hundreds of years of sins on our shoulders? The answer is, I have to focus on personal responsibility, both for good and for bad. If I tell my people, oh yeah, you have hundreds of years of sins to work off a debt, it's over. They're all going to assimilate. If, if I tell them, the other part, which is all, both of these messages are in the Torah. 
If I tell them, you know, we've sinned, we have been rotten, we've always been rotten, but today, if we all repent, that's all done and God will forgive us and move forward, God will do that. Ezekiel is ready to build the future. This prophecy is revolutionary. It goes back to Norman's point, because he's breaking rank with everything that comes before him. Graphic. Okay. There's the book of Ezekiel. Good. I'm in the book of Ezekiel. You are here. Here's the book of Ezekiel. Everything here totally believes in intergenerational reward and punishment because that's part of the system. Sometimes God does individual. Sometimes God does corporate. Ezekiel over here just says, okay, we're going to ignore all of that message and we're going to focus on individual responsibility because my job is to build the future. So I think that that's more what's going on over here. Ezekiel is not changing theology, and he's certainly not saying the same thing as the Torah. He's saying something radically different from the Torah. But he's doing it in order to build the future. The revolution of Ezekiel is that it's always been rotten, and that justifies the destruction, but it also means any second that we change our path is the second that God forgets all of that and immediately embraces us fully. And that's all part of why we're here. Ezekiel was able to somehow steer the ship perfectly during this era of the destruction and be able to get over this hump so we realize, no, we're not going to assimilate. We're going we're gonna to hold true and that we're going to come back and that the second we do that, God is ready for us. And even if we don't repent, as Ezekiel constantly says, God is going to make us come back because God needs us. It is a necessary permanent relationship. It's not something that's all up to us at all. We have one week left in the book of Ezekiel and two weeks left total for this segment. Next week we're going to get to the second half of the book. This, this book happens to work out really nicely. The first 24 chapters are all bleak and destruction. Then you have that eight-chapter interlude over there, 25 through 32, on how all the other nations around are going to get clobbered too by the Babylonians. And then 33 through 48 are the prophecies of redemption. It's just a very clean kind of system. It's so easy to outline. I'm telling you, look at I just did it in four seconds. So next week, we're up to 33 through 48. We will go through Ezekiel's prophecies of redemption. I look forward to doing that with you. Have a wonderful week.